Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. Times are strange. Armed conflict has returned to the European continent. Add this latest mess to those that have been ongoing elsewhere for years, and it becomes clear that our cosy 21st century Western existence of streaming TV, TikToking, Ugg boots, and stupid beers is as fragile as any civilised existence has ever been before it. Okay. I might be a bit out of step and out of date with Ugg boots, and to be honest, I don't really know what they are. But, I think it's fair to say that things feel pretty fragile. And it really shames me, sitting here in my usual spot in Derry and Tom's, that it took another European conflict to rekindle old anxieties and sensations that I thought were behind me. Back in the mists of the 1980s when the then USSR was the bogeyman, and an invasion in Europe could have heralded nuclear Armageddon. In many ways, my salad days. But why shame? Because fuckheads have been blowing people up outside of Europe for decades, often with our weapons, and approval, or in our name. And they still are. So why is this current situation kindling such an emotional reaction in so many people, myself included? Is it because, I don't know, the victims are white? Or close to home? Or, as some shoddy journalists have suggested, like us? A great deal of soul-searching, I think, is required to analyse our own reactions to such horrors, but for me, I think it harks back to that point of earlier. The Cold War. The 80s. That Russia of the old Soviet Union that I was our bugbear and our greatest fear as children in my neck of the woods. How cosseted and protected we've been that it takes that great Russian threat to re-emerge to kick us out of our days and have us metaphorically shitting ourselves all over again when the world has really been a fucking murderous mess all along. We've never really not been at war in my lifetime in one shape or another. If not directly, then by tacitly supporting murderous regimes. What is possibly most disappointing here in the UK is that our political direction and place in the geopolitical sphere has, for many years now, been dictated by a bunch of bought and paid for useful idiots. And now we see them scramble to appear respectable and sober in their response to a fascist imperial jock whose Johnson they've been sucking for years. It's a joke, really. A bad joke. And Moorcock has been telling us that joke for 60 years. So... Phil and I decided to stop doom-scrolling and watching the news for a while, and pull down a lesser-known Moorcock classic from the shelf. My Experiences in the Third World War, first published by Savoy in 1980, is a collection of short stories with that central theme. The sleepwalk into Armageddon, from the perspective of damaged human beings, hollowed out by their experiences and personal histories. The Savoy edition I have was, in fact, the very first Moorcock book I acquired under my own steam, I bought it in around 1982 or 3 from a strange tat shop on Chantelands Avenue in Hull. The kind of place that had some stationery, some clobber, some walking sticks, and all sorts of other odds and sods, but, most importantly, shelves of books. The shop was only there a year or so, and the books it had must have been seconds, or surplus stock, as the copy of my experiences in the Third World War I picked up had that odd little notch cut into the top. You used to see this on record sleeves too back in my youth. It's one of those strange features of the past. I picked up two other books that day. The Dick Emery Cookbook, which I still have to this day, and the Illustrated Hitler Diary, a big, gauche, red hardback book that was published in one lone edition by Marshall Cavendish, before that particular diary of that particular monster was revealed to have been faked, dooming all copies of this version to bargain bins. I thought that lost to time, but only a year or two ago I found that it was still at my mum and dad's house. What a weird blast from the past. Later, I'd pick up Panther and Grafton editions of Elric stories from a newsagent's. Sailor on the Seas of Fate being the first, 
with that fabulous Michael Whelan cover. But the Savoy edition of my experiences in the Third World War remains a particular favourite. Not just for the wonderfully dark cover, but the slightly oversized format was different from any of the old copies I'd picked up from Pops, and had a marvellous black and white illustration on an inner page of a behatted and hirsute Moorcock that made him look like some kind of Grizzly Adams character. I was enraptured. The centre pages were taken up with a Maldine illustrated Jerry Cornelius comic strip, and this was my very first introduction to Jerry, Frank, Catherine, Miss Brunner, Bishop Beasley, Mitzi, and others. And 12-year-old me, already a 2000 AD fan, so, you know, fairly used to unusual comics, was simply not prepared for it. He also had black and white ads at the back for other editions of his, as well as others by people like Jack Trevor Story, and it was the first indication I had that there were graphic adaptations of Hawkmoon books. Most intriguingly, it had an ad for John Clute's The Cruel World and its Piero, an analysis and bibliography of Moorcock's works up until 1980. It wasn't until the internet was a thing decades later that I found that it actually never was published, it never did reach print, and my years of looking for it in bookshops had been entirely in vain. Savoy was a fascinating publisher, one worthy of an episode all to itself at some point, so I'll save any further commentary for when we do that. Now, this edition of my experiences in the Third World War does differ from later ones that bear the same name, the Golanx collection for example, but three core stories are common to each, so they'll be the ones we talk about on this show. In the introduction to the Savoy edition, Moorcock says, The Third World War might not be fought, as one character in this book suggests of the Fourth, in the country of the soul, but it has certainly been fought thousands of times in the country of fiction. I am amongst that group of writers primarily associated with new worlds, which looks to science fiction for its metaphors, its images, rather than its prospective rationalisations. In that sense, we probably produced a kind of anti-SF, for we did not rationalise our anxieties, but tried to bring them into the light and examine them, perhaps in the faint hope that examination and analysis might give us some clue as to how we might, for instance, stop World War III. I currently hold the belief that any large-scale future war will be averted, if it is averted, simply from fear, from the knowledge of the irreversible consequences of engaging in such a war. It's a hard belief for a humanist like myself to come to. The narrator in the following stories is not me. Indeed, I hope the reader will detect at least one other interpretation of his character, beyond his own way of representing himself. This sort of first-person narrative, Henry James refined it, but he had his precursors, Attempting to offer clues as to the nature of the narrator and his own areas of self-deception and subjectivity is fairly hard to do. I recently completed a novel by Zanti Mandewas using this technique. But it hopes to provide an additional level of understanding. The narrator is revealed not so much by what he says as by what he selects to say to the reader. One of the reasons for so much experiment in recent years has been the desire to find narrative forms which will, with luck, carry an increased load of subject matter and implication. One loops from the past, 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th century developments in the art of fiction all have to be studied and, if useful, employed. One is never doing anything entirely fresh. Any freshness, I suppose, comes from what an individual writer can supply. My experiences in the Third World War are examples of current experiments of mine. Naturally, I continue to hope that this book will be published before the outbreak of the Third World War. Michael Moorcock, Ladbroke Grove, March 1980. So, join Phil and I in Derry and Tom's as we indulge in some hair of the dog and take trips with Michael Moorcock into the damaged mind of a KGB agent provocateur as he journeys to Canada, Pasadena and Cambodia in My Experiences in the Third World War. Oh. 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 Oh.
Well, here we are. We're back in Derry and Tom's and we're here to discuss Michael Moorcock's My Experiences in the Third World War. And I'm here with Phil. Hello, Hello. Phil. And welcome back. It's been a while. Thank it? you. It has indeed. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, but we've finally got there. Yeah, we've had a few false starts, haven't we? Due to a variety of things. Lurgy of the non-COVID variety, but some lurgy. Some technical issues. We spent a weekend in Morecambe for our anniversary, mm-hmm. when we were supposed to record this. That went slightly pear-shaped. But anyway, we're here now, and now is the time when we can actually do it. To date this, and to put this in context for people who might listen to this in the future, why did we decide to do my experiences in the Third World War? Well, it's a few weeks after we made the decision. But to date this, if we say we put all of our podcasts on old C90 Max L cassettes and stick them in a time capsule... Did you ever do a time capsule at school? No, we didn't. No, we didn't either. But I always see it on TV that people did. Yeah. It must be American telly. I don't think we ever did. <laughs> but I think Blue Peter did it as well. Blue yes. Peter did a time yes, capsule. Yes, I think they it? did. Yeah. So when we do our time capsule, to date it for then, Russia has invaded Ukraine. COVID is beaten, according to our government, despite being at its highest rate since the pandemic mm-hmm. started. Yeah. Um, so there, a little bit of context. We are in, well now, we're just into quarter two of 2022. And the world is extremely interesting. And also, to narrow it down even further, because obviously Russia has been invading Ukraine for a few weeks now, Mm. but the Prime Minister has just been charged for partying. That's right. So we have the first ever Prime Minister who's been um, guilty of a criminal offence, clinging on to power. And we have... Well, I tell you what, let's not get into politics. No. Let's just agree (laughs) that it's something of a shit show currently here in the UK. Um, so our original effort with this actually coincided not only with our anniversary, but us passing 30,000 downloads on Podbean. Well done. Oh, that's, that's quite exciting. Fantastic. Bonza, isn't it? So we're revisiting that and we're having a celebratory tipple whilst we talk about the Third World War. I think we need it. <laughs> I, think, I think you're probably right. What are we drinking, Phil? What are you on? So you, I said I fancied some rum, so you got me out some rum that you actually bought me as a present. Mm-hmm. And it's black cherry rum. Oh. By whom? Get them glasses Project on. 173. Project 173. Okay. So I also got you the ginger one, didn't I? Which I don't think we were mad keen on. No, but it was very nice the other night in a hot chocolate. It goes amazing in hot chocolate. <laughs> so let's hope that this one is a slightly better one. Actually, we haven't tried the ginger one with ginger ale or ginger beer, have we? No. Maybe that might be max ginger, though. That might be too much ginger. It's worth trying it. Worth giving it a go. And I very much enjoyed it in that chilli chocolate, hot chocolate. Yes. Chili chocolate, hot chocolate. Yeah. Struggling with my words already. We've barely yeah. even started. And I had it in an orange hot chocolate. Yeah. And it went very nice. Yeah. And you're having your project thingy. 173. 173, black cherry rum with a can of cans. A can of Diet Coke. Yes, that's right. So I, on the other hand, I'm going for kind of like a slightly more upmarket version of Malibu and Coke <laughs> in that I'm having Coco Cano, original Jamaica rum, with coconut flavour. No. So it's never seen a coconut, <laughs> but it's got coconut flavour in it. So it's not that much more upmarket than a Malibu and Coke. It might even be downmarket from a Malibu <laughs> and Coke. So I am having Coco Cano with a can of can. Uh, what does it say? It says, uh, Coco Cano is carefree soul with a subtle blend of the finest Jamaican rum and coconut flavour. Makes it the perfect mixer for a Coco Colada or simply add pineapple juice and serve over rice. Well, I'm having it with a can of can. The rum might be a product of Jamaica, but then it's mixed with coconut flavour in a warehouse in London. <laughs> we'll soon find out what it's like, though, because um, I'm a bit of a Malibu and Coke fan. So let's uh, let's see what the score is. 
And for anybody listening to this podcast for the first time, we do tend to have a drink in order to settle our nerves to actually podcast, even after 37 or 38 odd episodes. We found that a bit of booze actually just helps the medicine go down ever so slightly. Yeah. So there we go. Cheers. Cheers. Give that a go. Oh, that's actually Ooh. really nice. Is that good? It's really nice. I think we should nice. swap. Do you? Yeah, I need to try your black cherry rum. I've got ch- cherries in my mouth. Hold on. That's pretty fantastic, actually. Yeah. Mm, lovely. That's oh, that's good. nice. It's subtler yeah. than Malibu. Yeah, that's delicious. Right. I'll just uh, stick a bit more in there. Okay. What edition are we reading from today? Well, mine is the 1980-odd Savoy Original Edition, which is, uh, I think I mentioned this in the introduction, but it's the first Michael Moorcock book I ever picked up under my own steam. So up until I picked this up from a weird tat shop on Chance Avenue, everything else I'd ever got from was from Pops or from my uncles as hand-me-downs. And I got this the same day as I got the Dick Emery cookery book that our fish pie recipe nice. is still largely drawn from. <laughs> Excellent. So which one's yours from? Mine's from Orion Books, The Galance. Yes. So yours is The Galance Collection, isn't yeah. it? And whereas mine's got the beautifully dark and mysterious cover with the dead crow in the foreground. Or is that a crow person it's like a crow skeleton but could it be a crow person hard to tell with uh, a dead tree some flying crows and a horseman in a rush in the background oh yeah. yeah whereas yours has got that isolated to a tiny tiny little circle so it's only got the dead crow with the horseman but yeah. not all the other features yours has got yeah i do like those glance collections but the fact that they compress these wonderful covers into just tiny little circles is, is a bit of a shame but anyway those are the editions we're reading from Mine has uh, the three core Third World War short stories. Yours has an additional one, yes, which I don't have in my copy. And the rest of the short stories are completely different between one copy and the other. Because one of them was, in my um, version, is uh, the Dodgem Division. That ends up being repackaged in a broader package of Jerry Cornelius short stories later on. So things kind of get mixed up and, and re-compartmentalised into different collections later in time, particularly by the Golan's collection um, when they were released about 2010, mm-hmm. 2011, whenever that was. So actually, we're concentrating on those three core stories that are consistent in both. But we also did take a quick look at Catablanca, and we'll talk about that later on. Going to Canada is the first of these stories. And essentially, in a nutshell... It's about a KGB spy who's embedded in London with a cover as an alcoholic Polish expat antique dealer on the Portobello Road. And he reflects on his past, his Russianness via his Ukrainian parents and his Jewish blood. So we get the setup and, and it begins, I was ordered to Canada, that pie dish of privilege and broken promises, to Toronto. My chief was uncomprehending when I showed disappointment. Canada, everybody wants to go there. I've stayed in Toronto before, I told him. He knew. He became suspicious, so I said that I'd been joking. I chuckled to confirm this. His old great Russian face, moulded by the imposition of a dozen conflicting tyrannies, made a little mad smile. You were to look at Belko, an emigre. He is the only Belko in the phone book. Very well, Viktor Andreevich. I accepted the colourful paper wallet of tickets and money. This supply was an unusual one. My front normally allowed me to be self-supporting. I work as an antique dealer in the Portobello Road. Now, this is really interesting because a Polish expat antique dealer in the Portobello Road is actually consistent with a character from the Jerry Cornelius novels called Colonel Pyatt, who is like a, an old sot who features in the second Jerry Cornelius book and then onwards from there. And it does seem that Moorcock was quite interested um, or fascinated with this concept. This, and it, it, it's a very Gerald Kirsch kind of character 
And we actually do find out his kind of name, don't we? Over yes. Leaf, yes. where he says, My name in London was Thomas Dabrowski. For my own amusement, I preferred the name of Tom Conrad. Going back, just with the talk around going to Canada, yeah. one of my questions that came to mind, which didn't get answered, is why was he disappointed with this assignment? Is that because Canada has, kind of even in the 70s when this was being written, Canada has a reputation of being a little bit boring and staid? I don't know. What is it? We have Canadian listeners yeah. <laughs> who might get offended by that. But, yeah, why Why the disappointment about Canada? Is it because it's not as sexy Well, you said it been before. There was nothing that made me think something happened. Yeah. Weirdly, you remember when Toronto Wolfpack joined Super League? Yes. And um, people started going to Toronto to watch rugby league matches. We never got there. We never yeah. got there. And I always really liked the idea of going to Toronto. But the general feedback was like, it's nice, it's clean, but it's really boring. Mmm. And our neighbours, her brother, rest in peace, lived in Toronto. Yeah. And our neighbours went to Toronto and they said exactly the same thing. They said it's nice, it's clean, you can get nice food, but it's really, really boring. <laughs> so, our Canadian listeners, you're going to have to get back to us and explain to us why a KGB spy in the 70s living on the Portobello Road in London might be vaguely disappointed about the concept, the, the um, proposition of going to Canada to find a, a fellow spy. Wasn't there also something about the alcohol being really expensive out there? Yes. They said that not only is the alcohol expensive, it's not like here where you just go in, we go in our local little house around the corner, or you go in the off-license on the corner, or you go in the 24-hour shop, and they've just got everything you might want in terms of varieties of booze. I think they said that actually you had to deliberately go to a booze shop, and it was quite a different shopping experience. Yeah. Whereas here, you know, if we pop down the shop... For a pint of milk, I may well come out with a four-pack of Pilsner Raquel or Thatcher's Cider or, I mean, we don't tend to get our wine from, from local supermarkets anymore, do we? Because uh, at the moment, we're, we're a bit posh and we're in a wine club. Oh, God, we're such hipsters, aren't we? But that won't last. <laughs> at some point, we'll retire and we'll have to start getting our wine from Lidl. But that's in the future. So, yeah, maybe so. But listeners, tell us, why might that actually be the case? Because mm. mm. his, his boss was quite upset that he was affronted by giving this That's right, mission. he was. Yeah. So we, we found out, after, after he's been given this original task, we find out a little bit more about his background. When I say, after he said his name's Thomas Dabrowski, he says, although I had no particular desire to maintain my part forever, I enjoyed it for its complete lack of anxiety and the corresponding sense of security it gave me. Now that I was to return briefly to the real world, I should have to seek a fresh context. A Soviet citizen requires a context because his conditioning makes him a permanent child. Anything will do. Therefore, the context is often simple slavery. Even I, of Jewish-Ukrainian extraction through my grandmother, need that sense of boundaries. It's probably no coincidence that Kropotkin, founder of modern anarchism, was a Russian. His deviant views are directly opposed to our needs, which are on the whole, are of an authoritarian nature. So that's a, a a nice little insight into this into this this character's background, which actually gets it does get a little bit deeper, and he spends probably a good half of this short story reflecting on his background. Well, he, he talks about you know working for the KGB, and he described it as a mixture of priesthood and army, yeah, which may have been expected as of him as the second son, yeah, like there was a lot more pressure on the first son, but him he could have gone to become a priest. I get the impression he just wanted an easy life. I don't know if I'm right, but it's just that the assignment he's got where he's an art dealer and he drinks a lot, 
he kind of likes that role because yeah. it kind of mirrors what he's like yeah. in real life. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's quite a. It seems like a, a fairly easy kind of passive existence to slip into, doesn't it? Which, yeah. which fits him quite nicely. What well, one of the really fascinating things about this is when he describes his father and his mother. He says, "My father had been a naval petty officer. Later, he became commissar of a small town in Belarusia. Now, which would now be Belarus." Yeah. He had 11 other deserting sailors with him when he arrived in early 1918. They represented themselves as Bolsheviks. He had worn a leather jacket with two Mauser pistols in his belt and he had rarely taken off his sailor's peaked cap. Somehow the Civil War did not touch the town much, so the gang made the most of its time. I really like this. It's like kind of gives you this image of, which I'm sure was pretty much the case, of Civil War Russia being kind of like a weird snowbound version of the Wild West mm. with bandits and people jockeying for position. Yeah, people going into a town and going, there's no law here, let's yeah. take control. I am control. not the law, I am yeah. the commissar, yeah. yeah. And then it says, My father took five young girls from the local gymnasium for himself and gave the rest to his men. He instructed the girls in every debauchery. When the Civil War ended and became obvious who had won, my father did not go away with the girls, as he might well have, it was common practice, but made them read to him from the works of Marx and Engels, from Lenin's writings, from Pravda and Ishvestia, until he and they were familiar with the new dogma. Then he formed his thugs into the nucleus of the local party, sent four of the girls, now fully-fledged Komsomol leaders, back to the gymnasium as teachers, and married Vera Vladimirovna, my mother. Again, that, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Because in, in modern kind of pop culture and fiction, this idea about strict authoritarian men taking young women, training them, in a gym and training them to, to be spies and agents. It's Black Widow, it's Nikita, yeah. or the assassin, the American version. It's been really glamorised, that kind of thing, that kind of idea. But actually, what you're starting to verge upon there is something that you don't often get in Michael Mocock books, which is a little bit of quite horrific realism about what happens in scenarios like that. What you don't tend to get in Michael Mocock's fantasy novels, and even some of his more contemporary ones, is that much reference to things like sexual violence. Whereas here we've instantly got a fairly veiled reference to yeah. sexual violence and exploitation of girls. They've been brainwashed. It's almost like a cult, isn't it? Yeah. And he didn't kill them because he knew that they were all faithful to him yeah. and were spreading his word almost. Yeah, absolutely. So could bring in more people to love him, to idolise him. That's how it felt, wasn't it, yeah. reading it? Yeah. But also then you think, how does he know all this about his father? Did his father just openly talk? Because, it, it you know, he talks about his mother and how she became the wife because she, she would do more of the sexual things, yeah. more, what's the word I want? Enthusiastically. More enthusiastic, but also probably more pliant. Yeah. Because there's a bit here, it says, um, after his father goes off on party business and and then he's he's born a couple of years later, so he's not actually his father's son. Yeah. He is the son of a Jew. A writer. A Jewish writer. Yeah. And it says, the young writer who begat me was subsequently sent to a camp and died. I had long considered myself the secret guardian of his blood. My father was in most respects a realist. He preferred to accept me as his own rather than risk the scandal of his name being associated with that of the writer. My older sister was killed in the war. My older brother became a hero during the siege of Stalingrad. He ran a large power plant near Smolensk on the Dnieper. He was a self-satisfied, right-thinking man. A little pain, my mother used to say to her friends, makes good girls of us all. 
My father trained his girls to kiss his feet, his legs, his private parts, his arse. My mother was more wholehearted at this than her rivals, and this is how he came to pick her as his wife. Again, she behaved in a Russian way. She was dutiful in all things, but when his authority was absent, she became irresponsible. The Russian soul is a masochist's wounds. It is a frightening, self-indulgent, monumentally sentimental relinquishing of individual responsibility. It's schizophrenic. More than elsewhere, personal suffering is equated with virtue. And then he explains how his grandmother actually was raped and his mother was the result. His background is absolutely shot through with not just political violence, sexual violence, rape, the thuggery of his father and sexual exploiting girls and setting himself up as a commissar in town. But the other thing is, when he spoke to his grandmother and the break was brought up, she would just wink at him. So in her eyes, she wasn't, but it was seen as rape because I don't know if the person who did it was Jewish. I can't remember, but he was of the wrong background. And that's why it was classed as rape rather than it being rape. So his mum's promiscuous, his grandmother, well, who knows? Yeah. And this is all stuff that we know perpetuates cycles of behaviour, cycles of violence. And what we're getting straight away is, whilst the actual activity that takes place in this story is really mundane, he goes to Canada, the guy in there, he comes home, what we are actually getting is a really, really fascinating insight into the mind and the background and the the behaviour patterns of someone and where, and where they originate from. Because actually, the next thing after we get all this is we found out actually how his existence as this guy in Portobello Road is entirely mundane. But we also get reference to his attitudes to women and sex encapsulated into a visit to his GP for treatment for an STD, where he sits and listens to three women in the waiting room talk about diet pills. He listens to them before heading in to see his doctor for more pills to treat his VD. And on the way out, he recognises the heavy perfume of one of the girls and makes the connection that she's the one that gave him VD. <laughs> There's no hint of recognition while he's sitting there listening to them because he obviously doesn't view sexual interactions with women at this stage in, in his life as anything important. He doesn't relate to these women, but he just gets a whiff of a perfume and, yes, that's the one that gave me VD. He's quite a damaged individual. Yeah, and you apparently. see that in other parts of the stories, yeah. don't you? Yeah, so... He's been tasked by his boss to go to Canada, meet another Ukrainian expat, Mr. Belko, for some intel. But when he gets there, his contact's no longer there. So he spends a little time with Belko's wife and daughter, fellow Ukrainians, and he shows a little bit of humanity for a second as he gets a little tearful when Belko's wife explains their route to Canada via England after escaping the German occupation. And whilst he has this interaction with the absent contact's daughter, he gets a sense of the next generation diverging from the last in her kind of attitude and approach to nationalism. She sees it entirely normal to be both a Russian-Ukrainian patriot. Say a Russian-Ukrainian patriot. It sounds a really strange thing to say right now when we see the geopolitical situation. I had to do a little bit of research on this because, of course, growing up, we always used to refer to the Ukraine because it was the Ukraine region of the Soviet Union. Mm. In the 80s, that huge kind of Soviet bloc was exactly to our eyes um, how we saw it. We didn't really make any differentiations. No, no, not at all. Because the news was very... Even more limited at that point, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And until the fall of the USSR and um, I think the Perestroika, Ukraine hadn't been an independent republic since, incredibly, the 14th century. Yeah, that's quite wild, wow. isn't it? So when you look at it, it's previously been part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. This isn't coming out of my brain, by the way. I did actually <laughs> look this up. The Kingdom of Poland, and the one which probably had the greatest name, 
the Crimean Khanate, which I think is a pretty yeah. terrific name, but that was conquered by Russia. So they had a very brief stint as a republic after the Russian Revolution post-World War One. but then the Red Army took control a couple of years later, and from the 20s until the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were part of that communist bloc. To a modern reader, this thing with a daughter explaining that she's both a nationalist as a Ukrainian-Russian and as a Canadian, and she sees no conflict between those two things, mm. which the narrator does in a way, but he kind of sees it, he sees it as younger generations, and obviously with a, a completely different upbringing. But I think it's, as you say, he's quite screwed up. I remember earlier on when he said, I don't have the character necessary for the enjoyment of personal freedom. Mm. And he does describe people as being like sheep. Yeah. Not that he would fight against it, but it's almost like he's given up, isn't it? It's mm. just, he's telling the narration. But he's he is not entirely resigned to his lot in life. His lot, yeah. Isn't he? And we find out of the subsequent story, the subsequent two stories. Although, I suppose there's an argument to be made as to whether they are actually direct follow-ons from each other. I think they follow uh, a pattern as the world deteriorates. Is it the same character, or are we, are we kind of following a plot where, much like the Jerry Cornelius stories, even within 30 pages in a Jerry Cornelius story, you get vignettes about the end of the world and the Third World War that actually are pretty much alternate timelines, mm. all within the same novel. Could be that, could be the same. I think it's really Mocock just expressing ideas. Either way, it really works. So he's got there, Belko's gone, and <laughs> he spends some time with the family, and then he gets ordered back to Russia because the geopolitical situation has changed somewhat. And that's the end of that story. I think the only thing to mention which feels like an emotion is, although he wasn't there very long before he went back to London, mm. he felt homesick being in Moscow. Yes. For that brief period. Yeah, that's right. Being an alcoholic on the Park Bellow Road is home <laughs> to him at this stage. So yeah, to a modern reader, this this might read quite oddly. And I think because we have this fairly cosseted island existence in the UK, it's sometimes pretty difficult to be able to fully relate to the experience of many people in Europe where this shit's been kind of a churn throughout their families' lives and their families' histories. Mm. And Ukraine is a really, really perfect modern current example of that because now it's all happening to them again. Quite depressing, but the wheel turns again for these people. Key takeaways then from going to Canada, the first story. What do you think? Uh, that we have a guy who, like you say, he's accepted his lot. He might not be happy, but emotionally he's quite stunted almost. Yeah. And he's just doing what he's told to do because yeah. that's what his job entails, really. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's, there's, there's quite a, an interesting arc from here to the end of the third story, isn't there? Which yeah. we will get to. The takeaway for me is that the build-up catastrophe is banal. It's pedestrian. <laughs> um, and the people that drive it willingly are really complex products of decades of circumstance and trauma and conditioning. That's a, that's a really good point, actually. The, the thing is... He has to go to Canada. The person's not there. He goes back. He has to go back home via Moscow. Yeah. And there's not a lot else in between. No. Just setting a bit of context to him as a person. Yeah, right. So that's story one. And I've nearly finished my glass of Kokukano. Well, I very sneakily, whilst you were talking... <sighs> topped yours up. Topped mine up without making a noise. Ooh, because of the size of this ice cube. The cocoa kind of settles at the bottom under the ice cube. Oh, was that? But it actually still tastes really quite nice. Did you get a big hit? I did get a big hit of cocoa kind of. <laughs> Okay, so the next story is leaving Pasadena. 
So now the spy is in the USA. The war's underway. The USSR and the USA are now allies of, allies of convenience due to new alliances and being at war with China. And he has a relationship with a woman that has some problems. I just found the whole description really sad. It was like he was having, a, like you say, he was in a relationship with this woman. I don't know how long. And it was just, he knew he had to go away. So he was being distant. And in his head, how he was treating her was what was best for her. Yeah. When he come across as a real shit. Yeah, I think he's dealing with it in the only way he knows how, which is to basically not relate to her on any human level whatsoever. So I'll read the first paragraph from it. Because it, it basically, it, it kicks off thus. I was asked by the woman, he even refers to her as the woman. We don't ever get a name, do we? No. I was asked by the woman why I had no pity. She was sat on the floor, her elbow resting upon a couch, her head in her hand. She had not wept. Her anguish had tempered her eyes. They glittered with unvoiced needs. I couldn't touch her. I could not insult her with my compassion. I told her that pity was an inappropriate emotion. Our world was burning and there was no time for anything but rapid action. Africa and Australia were already gone. The clouds and the contamination were a matter of anxiety to those who survived. She told me, in slow, over-controlled syllables, that she was probably dying. She needed love, she said. I told her she should find someone, therefore, whose needs matched her own. My first loyalty was to my unit. I could not reach my hand to her. Any gesture would have been cruel. And all I could think at the end of that was harsh. Yeah, that's pretty cold. <laughs> yeah, it's it? very cold. That's pretty cold. Yeah, go find somebody who matches your own, i.e. someone else who's dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or, or somebody who has that kind of need to invest emotional energy in yeah. somebody else, even you know, they might be dying, but yeah. whatever. And it's like, it's a fantastic example of how skillful Mocock is as a writer because what he's doing here is he's putting himself in the shoes of somebody who has this traumatic past. We've already found out he's got a really difficult way, well, almost an inability to relate to women on a healthy level. And this is a perfect example of, and we get more examples as, as this particular story goes on, this is a perfect example of, of how this goes into operation where the woman he's in a relationship with is at her ultimate moment of need, and he wraps it up. He wraps his response up in, well, I can only be loyal to one thing or the other, and I'm being loyal to my unit, which feels to me like a really, really easy excuse. And <laughs> I, I, I read that, I read this as a really fantastic narrative that, that really captures how damaged somebody is and, and the shit excuses they give themselves to be crap to people. Yeah. I mean, it's it's as you say, Morcott has written it so well because he didn't have to go into going back at times when his mum and his dad. Yeah. It's obvious from the story that he laid out that the relationship it was it was all screwed up, wasn't yeah. it? His dad obviously didn't respect women yeah. and this is what he was brought up with. And I wonder if, you know, he said he he would never accept that there was a scandal, so he just took him on in his own. Yeah. But I reckon his resentment would have shone through. So he's he's had shit from all angles, hasn't he, really? Yeah. And this is the end product. Yeah. So anyway, he turfs out and leaves to it. He goes to see his chief. Who's rented a lovely house, hasn't he, on Long Beach? He's got a really, really lovely house in Long Beach, which is still populated. People are still sailing yachts. The The war threat doesn't seem to have touched that part of the war. He seems to be having quite a pleasant existence. He says, We drove to a military airfield. Both Soviet and US planes were there. 
We went immediately to our illusion and had scarcely settled in the uncomfortable seats before we took off. My chief handed me a passport. It had my real name and a recent photograph. You're officially with the liaison staff at last, he said. It means you can report either to the Americans or to us. Nothing will be kept back. Matters are too urgent now. I expressed appropriate surprise. I looked down on Los Angeles, its beaches, its fantasies. It was like setting aside a favourite story as a child. We headed inland over mountains, going east. The Third World War has already been fought, said my chief. In the Third World, as the Americans call it. Why else would they call it that? This is actually the Fifth World War. What was the fourth? I asked. It was fought in the country of the soul. I laughed. I had forgotten his sentimentality. Who won? Nobody. It merely prepared us for this. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's fabulous, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely fabulous. When, when I read this the first time a while back, when we first started doing things, that, that is one of the pieces of text that just flew off the page at me and smacked me around the chops. Yeah. It's absolutely terrific. And really kind of, really identifiable. Since the end of the Second World War, I know we've had the Cold War and everything else, we've always either been at war in actuality or by proxy, as we are now providing weapons to countries, on one case fighting for the life, and the other case countries actually bombing hospitals and children themselves, which is a really depressing and complex situation. And they do actually talk about the war, don't they? Yeah. And they say something about civilised countries remain mostly unharmed so far. Yeah, that's right. The new task is to head to Venezuela because they need to safeguard oil supplies. And we start to just touch on a little bit of possibly like, a, maybe not a science fiction element, but maybe like sort of an alternate history element or, or a speculative history, fiction, history, whatever the fuck. When they're in Venezuela, there's a really brilliant description. And it says, The town with its skyscrapers and remnants of Spanish-style architecture was well lit and relatively clean. I'd once been told that Venezuela is the future. They had been experimenting with different energy sources, using their oil income to develop systems which would not be much dependent on oil. But Maracaibo seemed very little different, save that the lake itself, full of machinery and rigging, occasionally gave off mysterious puffs of flame which would illuminate buildings and create uncertain shadows. That's nice. That's like the beginning of Blade Runner. Yeah. That, isn't it? There was a stink of oil about the place. As I walked, local map in hand, to the address my chief had given me, I saw one of their airships, built by a British firm at Cardington, sail into the darkness beyond the city. Venezuela had been perhaps the last country to associate romance with practical engineering. So you get that really lovely, kind of almost steampunky element. I don't know if never wrote steampunk, but steampunk has kind of procured a lot of Mococian trappings, particularly from things like Warlord of the Air, this idea of airships being back in fashion and be actually being, from an engineering and, and practical perspective, sensible again and practical. So that's really nice. You get this really cool description of Venezuela of the future. And the talk of oil, it always comes down to wealth. It does. Always a key strategic priority in any of these situations. What it? a country's doing for another country depends on how you work with them. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, and one of the reasons I suppose things are so shady at the moment is that many European countries have been, things like oil, gas supplies, the massive geopolitical complications that we're seeing as a result of people disagreeing with our sanction in Russia. It's, um, yeah never easy is it going back to you know his current mission now in venezuela he feels that it's pointless but going is 
having something to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and while he's there, he has an affair of sorts with a young prostitute that's procured for him by a hostess at the place where he's staying. It's a very cold transaction. Well, because his chief is going into the talks with the Venezuelans on his own. They yeah. didn't need them both there. So he actually gave him the card of where the brothel was. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, his relationship with the girl, who's called Maria, is entirely dysfunctional. Well... I struggled at the start when he said how young she was. Yeah. And then when he actually went to her flat and said, actually, she's a bit older than I initially thought. And I'm like, oh, that's all. It's terrible, isn't it? There's, there's a, a passage here that says, Initially, Maria had, in the manner of despairing women, attempted to make of herself an improved piece of capital. She had dyed her hair, shaved her pubis, painted her face and nails. The girl whore is always highly valued wherever one goes in the world. All this was depressing, for I was never particularly interested in economics. I found myself moralising a trifle. I told her that maturity and self-possession were in the end more attractive qualities to me. They guaranteed me a certain kind of freedom based upon mutually accepted responsibility. She didn't understand a word, of course. I added that a woman's attempts to use a man as her context were thoroughly understood by someone like myself. I had my loyalties, but like most men, I was not able to be either a woman's nation or her cause. <laughs> Incredible. There's another bit as well. We go on, and he spends lots of time with her. He spends some time with her on yachts. He finds out she's effectively got a pimp. Is it Ramirez? I can't remember. There's this passage here. It says, Several days and nights passed. Each time we met, Maria would propose another sexual escapade, and I would agree. My own curiosity was satisfied, as was my impulse to believe myself of use to someone. My chief continued to be drunk and waved me on, even when I reported exactly what was happening. As I grew to know her better... I believe that she was desperately anxious to become a woman, to escape the norm of security in which she now found herself. Her need for instantaneous maturity, her greedy reaching for experience, however painful, was in itself childish. She had indulged herself and been indulged for so long that her means of achieving liberty were crude and often graceless. And yet liberty, maturity, might gradually come to her, and through trauma and that feminine willingness to find fulfilment in despair. There was no doubt that her activities, her attitudes, disguised a considerable amount of despair and emotional confusion. I wondered if I were not exploiting her, even though superficially she seemed to be, exploiting me. We were, I determined, merely making reasonable use of one another's time. That is the classic... <laughs> right, I, as you know, I worked at HMPL for a number of years, and there were two sex offender wings at HMPL. And this is the classic nonce's excuse. She was exploiting me as much as I was exploiting her. Actually, maybe more so. Yeah. When they're talking about a 15-year-old girl. Well, they said, didn't they, she was 15, 16, but then he, th he decided she was older. But is, is that him justifying it to himself? Well, good point. There's he no... describes her as a girl whore. Yeah. And he talks about the concept of girl whores and why they're so popular. And then he goes on to justify it to himself and actually comes to a what to him is a logical conclusion is that she's exploiting him as much as, if not more, than he's exploiting her. And that's why he's telling his chief in case she is exploited to take advantage. Yeah. But it's the story of Ramirez, of she, he met her, he wowed her, she fell in love and then it's like, oh... Yeah, I've got a wife and loads of other women. I'm not going to be faithful to you, but can you do this for me? Yeah. Turn tricks. Yeah. But he even draws a parallel between his relationship with his chief 
and the girl's relationship with her pimp, as if to compare them and normalise it and say, well, she's just doing what I'm doing and her pimp is basically my chief. It's, it's a really unhealthy way of rationalising his completely dysfunctional approach to this relationship. Yeah, and weave through this bit with the week he spends with her. Yeah. He has these feelings for the woman back in Pasadena, who still isn't named. Yeah. But it's like you're thinking about her more and more. But you, it's not stopping you sleeping with this young girl. He, he does occasionally think back to the woman yeah. in Pasadena and, and seems to kind of like suffer these agonies of waiting to get involved as the world crumbles. And, and this just manifests in his continued inability to relate healthily to women, either to the girl whore, in inverted commas, that he's spending all his time with, or the woman that he was effectively living with, who appears to be dying, who he just can't relate to either. What do you reckon? Is that because she's ill or because he has to go on a mission? Because we do learn this is how he does it, isn't it, when he has to yeah. go on a mission? I get the impression him ties. getting a mission gives him the perfect excuse to get himself out of an awkward situation. Yeah. But in his own weird, fucked-up way, whilst he's away, spending days and days and days on end in threesomes on yachts with a young prostitute and also having a pissing contest with her pimp and when makes his pimp realise actually that he's a hardcore KGB agent and the pimp better watch himself and the pimp shits his pants and runs for the hills. This KGB situation and his, and his position gives him the perfect excuse to exercise this toxically masculine way of dismissing this pimp when he's not going to be around for a protracted period of time. And this this girl, as it again kind of explains, Maria explains quite an unhealthy relationship, obviously, with Ramirez, the pimp. Did you understand why he wanted to meet him? Because he actually said he kind of got on with him. They shared cocaine, yeah. they went out and had fun. And it was only when they got back to shore that he decided to scare the shit out of him. Because it's, I think it's all about ownership. She's explaining that her relationship with... She didn't describe him as a pimp. but she's no, expla- she didn't. She's explaining her relationship with this guy. In this moment, the narrator basically wants to own this girl. So he wants to meet Ramirez. And when he does meet Ramirez, you can actually visualise this as a five-minute scene in a movie where they spend time together, they share cocaine, they spend time on a boat, they have a good time tentatively feeling each other out but when push comes to shove cannot resist the urge to put this guy in his place and establish himself as the alpha and the other thing which i thought also makes you think do you know what you're a bit of a shit really is <laughs> what again <laughs> yeah yeah is he gave her some money she said she had some money so she could get away from ramirez but then it was like yeah she'll probably only last a week and then she'll go back to him yeah all he wants or she asked for help to get yeah. to america and he was like, oh no, you're better off here. Yeah. He didn't want to help. Yeah. And in the meantime, I'm going to humiliate your pimp, who I'm going to leave you with yeah. very shortly. Good luck with that. Yeah. You know, because I'm pretty sure her, her pimp being absolutely humiliated by the narrator isn't going to work in her interest. He's like, hmm, who's he going to take that one out of? Mm. So to cap all this off, the Venezuela mission essentially ends. He returns to Pasadena, where he seems to think he's finding his humanity with the woman, who we found now is actually terminally ill. Yeah. So he finds his humanity with the woman by agreeing to be her euthanizer. Yeah. And and how does he, he how does he make that? He kind of implies that this is why she actually got with me or wants to be with me because she knows I won't say no if it gets to the point where she would rather be killed than die in agony. That's right. And and it, it says at the end she became relieved. The tension between us vanished completely. She smiled at me and took my hand again in love with her executioner. Yeah. What a fucking prize this <laughs> guy is. I love that end. In love with her executioner. That's fantastic. Key takeaways from leaving Pasadena. 
<laughs> wow. He's a little shit who <laughs> sleeps with young girls. Yeah. He's not a nice man, is he? No. In his head, he can justify everything he does. Like the woman who is dying. Yeah. The young girl. Everything he can justify to himself. Yeah. I think this story doubles down on the idea that broken relationships and sexual dysfunction are kind of like a key component of the fucked up personalities that, that drive the machinery and take us to the brink. And yeah. and this is another example of that. But also, the, the narrator tries really desperately to find some level of connection and humanity, but is is completely broken way of relating to women and, in inverted commas, love, just makes him continually destructive. Mm. And he seems to have no grip or personal insight on that. And yeah. we don't know how much the law is impacting on this. Yeah. Because we know it's going on. They make some references to it. I know we're going on to the next chapter, but he's already screwed up. But, you know, you have a combination and this is what we have. Yeah. The third story is crossing into Cambodia. And now the narrator is completely in the thick of it. Yes. He's with a detachment of Cossacks. The 6th Division, I believe. And he's been with them a few months when we pick it up. That's right. The, the world is basically on fire now. So it begins. I approached and Savitsky, commander of the 6th Division, got up. As usual, I was impressed by his gigantic, perfect body. Yet he seemed unconscious either of his power or of his elegance. Although not obliged to do so, I almost saluted him. He stretched an arm toward me. I put the papers into his gloved hand. These were the last messages we received, I said. The loose sleeve of his Cossack Cherkeska slipped back to reveal a battle-strengthened forearm, brown and glowing. I compared his skin to my own. For all that I had ridden with the six for five months, I was still pale, still possessed, I thought, of an intellectual's hands. Evening light fell through the jungle foliage, and a few parrots shrieked their last good night. Mosquitoes were gathering in the shadows, whirling in tight-woven patterns like a frightened mob. The jungle smelled of rot. Yakovlev, somewhere, began to play a sad accordion tune. He's got a real hard-on for Cossacks, our narrator, hasn't mm. he? This, this guy who's been like a, in some ways, a wet background spy, just moving in certain circles, drinking, smoking heavily, sleeping with women. Now, it's, the, the way this is couched, it's like, now it feels like he's with real warriors. Real and, it, and he's got a real crazy admiration for them. He's part of this brigade of Cossacks, and he ain't a spy anymore. He's a liaison officer, and they've been torturing a Vietnamese prisoner for intelligence. And it's quite harsh, this. I stood to one side while these two professionals conducted their business. Savitsky strode over to the spine very quickly, like a man plucking a hen, drew the bayonets out and threw them to the ground. Because we previously found that this guy had been pinned to the ground at four points with bayonets. He has just given the information that they're wanting, hasn't he? Yeah. With some gentleness, he helped the peasant to his feet and sat him down in the leather campaign chair he had carried with him on our long ride from Da Nang, where we disembarked off the troop ship which had brought us from Vladivostok. I'll get some rags to stop him bleeding, I said. Good idea, confirmed Savitsky. We don't want the stuff all over the maps. You'd be better in on this anyway. As the liaison officer, it was my duty to know what was happening. That's why I'm able to tell this story. My whole inclination was to return to my billet where two miserable ancients cowered whenever I entered or left, but where at least I had a small barrier between me and the casual day-to-day terrors of the campaign. But, illiterate and obtuse though these horsemen were, they had accurate instincts and I could tell immediately if I betrayed any sign of fear. 
Perhaps, I thought, it's because they're all so used to disguising their own fears. Yet bravery was a habit with them, and I yearned to catch it. I love that line. Yeah. I had ridden with them in more than a dozen encounters, helping to drive the Cambodians back into their own country. Each time I had seen men and horses blown to pieces, torn apart, burned alive. I had come to exist on the smell of blood and gunpowder as if it were a substitute for air and food. I identified it with the smell of life itself. Yet I had still failed to achieve that strangely passive sense of inner calm my comrades all, to a greater or lesser degree, displayed. Only in action did they seem possessed in any way by the outer world, although they still worked with efficient ferocity, killing as quickly as possible with lance, sabre or carbine, and, with ghastly humanity, never leaving a wounded man of their own or the enemies without his throat cut or a bullet in his brain. I was thankful that these, my traditional foes, were now allies, for I could not have resisted them had they turned against me. So again... Not only is that a really cool passage and a really great example of what an ace writer of a like sort of we saw in things like the Hawkmoon books and the Eternal Champion when we read it that he's really fantastic at using quite spare language to conjure up really grim imagery yeah. of battle and war and there's much more of it in this which in some ways at times it reads like Mocock decides to do Sven Hassel or the Devil's Brigade or something like that, and it, and it works really, really well. But I don't think it's just the narrator that has a hard-on for Cossacks. I think to some extent, Mocock, like a lot of other authors of fiction around about that time, had a bit of a hard-on for Cossacks too. Mm. Because Cossacks feature in a lot of post-war fiction, that you know, the pop-up in Sven Hassel books, but also a lot of quite contemporary stuff. And the Cossacks are a really interesting case because they're a Slavic group from an area of Asia that covers massive swathes of territory that includes Ukraine yeah. and parts of Russia. They've got a hugely complex history in terms of allegiances. There are different subgroups within within Cossacks. But they always have this fearsome reputation as cavalry. And it's often romanticised and exploited in fiction. And after the Russian Revolution, many Cossacks opposed the Bolsheviks in the Red Army. But others actually bought into the communist ideology or propaganda or whatever. And they were kind of known as Red Cossacks. And the White Cossacks were the ones that opposed. And ultimately, I suppose picked the wrong side and as a result they were oppressed by the Soviet Union for the next 20 years or so and they were particularly unpopular with the Bolsheviks as they comprised some of the first World War I battled hardened major army regiments to reje- reject and fight the Reds. So from the Russian Revolution onwards they had a really really complex history and complex loyalties and in World War Two, they continued to be a difficult group to pin down because different Cossack groups fought on both sides. Some fought for Hitler. Some collaborated with Hitler's armies and a result of uh, their harsh treatment from Lenin and Stalin of the previous decades. So, But there's a great example in pop culture of the villainous Cossack stereotype with those dubious or changeable loyalties. The villain in Goldeneye, played by Scene Bean. Sorry, we call Sean Bean Scene Bean. <laughs> um, so after he turns villain, he tells... Sorry. Do it for Yorkshire. Do it for Yorkshire. Um, after he turns villain, he tells Bond that his parents were the Cossacks who collaborated with the Nazis but attempted to defect to the UK at the end of World War II. But the British government sent them back to the Soviets and most were executed. So Trevelyan's parents survived, but his father, ashamed to have survived, kills his wife and himself when Trevelyan was six. So he continues this stereotyped Cossack behaviour of double-crossing duplicity. And obviously, because he's, he's seen being, it doesn't go well for him. <laughs> and he dies. <laughs> So yeah, the villain in Goldeneye. Uh. I mean, if you obviously we haven't gone through the whole story yet, but they're not nice people. But then you could argue in war, a lot of people do this sort of behaviour that is to yeah. come. They're they're hardcore fighting bastards. 
aren't they? These these Cossacks in this story, and and Cossacks in popular culture or media or whatever have always had this mythic status of fearsome, large-hatted, generally mm. saber-wielding horsemen with with sometimes dubious loyalties. And I think Mocock does give a more nuanced picture through the eyes of the narrator to some degree in the stories, but. By the end of Crossing into Cambodia, they're pretty much committed to an apocalyptic cinematic suicide ride into a mushroom cloud. <laughs> <laughs> so, probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit there. Um, but yeah, I just do remember reading lots of looks of books and Cossacks would always pop up in some way, shape or form. But that's just a bit of a digression. I do think you are right, though, that there was that idealistic of them being... Yeah. sexy, romanticised. Absolutely, and and he's actually reinforced them himself, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? Because at the beginning he talks about Savisky and he's basically talking about his bronzed, almost godlike chest. body and his big yeah. chest and his warlike forearms and, and all this business. Mm. But um, back to the grimness, though, and once again we, we get something in here that is, again, unusual for Moorcock, but because he's... I think he's thoroughly invested at this stage and he's thoroughly in the mind of this character. The narrator casually assists one of his comrades in the rape of a Vietnamese woman. Well, you say woman. She's 14. Yeah, yeah. And the the reason he he assists is because Savinsky asks, is she clean? Because one of his comrades have been washing her. Yeah. And our protagonist says... Most likely not. And the reason you find out later on that she most likely not is because she's already been raped multiple times. Yeah, it's grim, isn't it? Yeah, so he decides he wants a blowjob yeah. and asks, hold her head, and yeah. he does. And he does. It's not explicit in its description. No. But it's it's still incredibly harsh. But in terms of consistency with the arc that this character's on, it really just continues his track and his his dysfunctional attitude to women just basically hits its zenith at this point. The world is burning, nothing... There's there's not even a hint of regret. It's just cold and mechanical. Yeah, because you would have hoped there was a part of him that would go, fuck off. Yeah. If you want to do that, do it yourself. Yeah. But he's, he's not even got that about him. And I think what shows just how ultimately damaged he is is... It's not only cold, but it lacks any trace of empathy for either party. He's got no empathy for the girl, and he's actually got zero empathy for Savitsky. He's just older red for me, and he's like, all right. Yeah. It's it's pretty cold. It's it's almost like he's been given an order, he follows it. Yeah. End of. Yeah. And again, it's, it's unusual for a Mocock story, but I think it does show how deeply invested he is in trying, trying to put us in the brain of what is essentially a, a complete sociopath. I suppose in modern terminology, um, so, uh, somebody who just has zero ability to relate to anybody on an emotional level. Mm. So the remainder of the tale is kind of like Mocock does Sven Assel. It's very effective. It's brilliantly driving in its descriptions of combat. Again, unusual for Mocock's it's contemporary real world. It's napalm, it's machine guns, hand-to-hand combat, brutality. And they're heading for Angkor, and it all builds up to them seeing a mushroom cloud on the horizon in the direction of Angkor. And he has this exchange with them, and they're basically... He says, you, you can't continue. You'll just be going straight into radiation and fallout. I'm like, well, we, what's that? We have no idea what you're on about. We don't understand radiation. But Savitsky has already been... He's described him as going insane. He thought yeah. he was going insane when he talked about... Wanted a new world, a new civilization, which is free from the influence of women and Jews. Yeah. I'm like, oh, 
Yeah. All right, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's 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 firmly in his lane and he's not going to deviate from it at no. this point, is he? So the Cossacks have no concept of radiation. So when they go for their final charge, he's like, uh, no. And he t- he turns around and fucks off and leaves them to it. So there's been all this build up over these three stories of this like sort of build up to to the the ultimate end. And he admires these Cossacks. He's got a real lob on for them. Um, but when it actually comes down to it, he's like, yeah, I don't know, see you later. But that description of the mushroom cloud and the charge of the Cossacks is so incredibly vivid. It's one of the things that actually stuck with me from when I read this when I was like All 10, right. 12 years old. There's just like tiny, tiny little details like the description of windborne ash stinging the bodies and drying blood on the flanks of the horses. It's just so crisp and vivid in terms of the language. And it's yeah. classic Morcock. But and even at that stage, he stayed true to character. He didn't say... Well, I'm going back, sod you all, because yeah. I want to live. He just rode with them slowly yeah. until he got to the back, <laughs> and then like, he dropped he just, back. Let's get just a little bit more in front, a little <laughs> bit more in front. Yeah, he, he didn't go now for cough. He just like he's like nodding, he's nodding. His head, his horse is getting slower and slower, and they're getting more and more in front. When they pick up the gallop, he just wheels around and heads in the opposite direction, hoping to be saved. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's just find that last paragraph. Here we go. I move with them. I had become used to the security of numbers and I could not face their disapproval, but gradually they went ahead of me until I was in the rear. By this time we were almost at the bottom of the hill and trotting towards the mushroom cloud which was now shot through with all kinds of dark swirling colours. It had become like a threatening hand, while the wind-borne ash stung our bodies and drew blood on the flanks of our mounts. Yakovlev, just ahead of me, unstrapped his accordion and began to play some familiar Cossack battle song. Soon they were all singing. Their pace gradually increased. The noise of the accordion died, but their song was so loud now that it seemed to fill the whole world. They reached full gallop, charging upon that appalling outline, the quintessential symbol of our doom, as their ancestors might have charged the very gates of hell. They were swift, dark shapes in the dust. The song became a savage, defiant roar. My first impulse was to charge with them, but then I had turned my horse and was trotting back towards the safety of the valley, praying that, if I ever got to safety... I would not be too badly contaminated. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. So, so even at that point, he's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, what bother? I hope I haven't picked up too much of a dose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely incredible. Oh, what a guy. Yeah. Key takeaways then from crossing into Cambodia. For me, it's like this fucked up guy that's turned the wheels and driven the bus due to his long-term conditioning is finally, ultimately, insufficiently invested in it to carry it through on a personal level. He's like, eh, no, I'll live to fight another day. Yeah, he's like, uh, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it for those three tales then. That's like the core of my experiences in the Third World War. And I think I mentioned previously that, is is this Colonel Pyatt? Is it an alternative, alternate version of Colonel Pyatt who runs that bric-a-brac shop in the Portobello Road in the Jerry Cornelius novels? Murcock's very experimental at this stage. You know, he was experimental when he was writing short stories for New Worlds and editing New Worlds and everything else. He's always been experimental anyway, but he's also really, really liked the idea of the unreliable narrator. And it's like, we're in the head of this guy. We're getting everything from his perspective. We're getting the benefit of his absolutely fucked up attitude to all sorts of things. And Murcock really kind of loves the idea, the old sot full of told stories running a shabby shop in the 70s whose background's kind of questionable but nevertheless intriguing. And that also taps in a little bit to the Edgar Rice Burroughs John Carter setup, doesn't it? That Mocock kind of pastiches in the Michael Caine novels. We started reading more of Ramaz. Yeah. The book kept falling apart. That's another one that got held up. 
we will get back to it. I've read mine. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a narrative about fantastical things related through kind of an intermediary. So he, the intermediary is cut out and he's, he's talking directly to us, the reader. But is it kind of a, a, an unreliable narrator or is it to be taken at first value? I think you can never take anything at this first value when it's always done from first-person perspective. Yeah. But it's nevertheless really interesting because of its links with the other stuff that Mocock was doing around about the same time because he's probably writing these around about the time He's writing some of the later Jerry Cornelius novels and also other bits and pieces that are kind of tangentially related, like the Entropy Tango and things like that, which I know you've not read. But these things, you can either take them at first value or you can just read them for what they are. And that's one of the things that makes Moorcock so satisfying and so much fun. And even though these stories are really harsh and really fucking grim in many, many ways, they've got so much depth, so much depth, so many different layers. And you can take the choice. How many layers, how many levels do you want to delve through? Some or none at all. It's still a good read as a throwaway or it's still great to ruminate and talk about and drink Coco Cano and kind of can't. And so many levels in such a small passage. I think each story was around 20 pages. Yeah. So it's easy enough to read, but you get so much from those 20 pages. Yeah. We did actually go on and read Casablanca, didn't we? We did. And I'm, I'm, I've left my books through yonder, so I'm going to just nab yours, and I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs in Casablanca. Because Casablanca, in my book, comes before it the comes other before. three. Yeah, and I, th- I think it is evidently set before, but it's also written about 10 years later. So this is written 10 years after the others, and it's subtitled... An episode in the Third World War in, in yeah. the book Casablanca, in the hardcover that I've got, the Golan's hardcover. Beyond the deserted huts and artificial pools far out to sea, like a cold wall around our world, a mist had formed. I saw an oil tanker moving through it, coming away from the gulf, while on the harbour and the unkempt flat roofs where TV dishes were raised like broken shields, a thin drizzle settled. I turned from the window, but found no warmth in the room. Well, darling, you told me so. Panos is a complete bastard. She advanced on me, put her hand on my arm, her head against my shoulder. Forgive me? Her lips anticipated the pleasure of my assent. Again, I resisted the ritual. The effort was considerable. I'm tired of what you do, I said. I'm going to leave you. Oh, sweetie. Her disbelief turned into fury at the prospect of being denied her usual blessing. I wondered if she had always loved me, and if every betrayal I had so far accepted had been from fear of that one terrible truth. Faithless, I began, but moralising was beyond me. I had known her from the beginning. Any pain she caused was of my own seeking. I felt disgust. I stepped back from the balcony. We have to separate, Nadia. That doesn't suit me, she controlled herself. I need you. I have nothing left to give. I'm exhausted. I've been selfish. I didn't think. But she gave up this approach almost at once, retrieving the dignity and a sense of perspective at the same time. She laughed. I had confirmed her view of the world. Her golden skin glowed like metal, and her eyes were ancient stones. So straight away in this story, this is a really, really different narrator, Yeah, I think. A really different narrator, because he's almost idolising this woman, whilst recognising more... There's, there's a level where he's recognising that he's not for her, rather than vice versa. So this doesn't feel like the same narrator, although you could argue that this is like the first in a, in a step, but I think this is Mocock in a completely different mood and a completely different mm. frame of mind. Yeah, you could make it work if you think this was well before... The other three. Yeah. It was very early on before he was screwed up more than he already has. But yeah. it, it is still hard. I, I think Moorcock's often said that what he writes, and I think this must be the same for any writer, but particularly his characters were influenced by the kind of state of mind that he was in at the time. 
So when he writes The Dreaming City, the first Elric story, he's uh, an angry, lovelorn teenager or just turned 20 or something like that. And that comes out in... Um, that explains why Elric is such such an emo twat <laughs> in, in, the, in the very first Elric stories that were written. Yeah. And I, I think by the late 80s, this seems to reflect a Murcock who is much less cynical because this Casablanca really lacks the cynicism of those other three tales. Yeah. It's an interesting story. It's a good story. Very interesting finale as well. The whole story is is kind of basically what it's about is is in Morocco and a Russian-backed Egyptian is hoping to fa- create like a unified socialist Arab state with a specific young man as the de facto head, and this young man has a certain lineage. Mm. And the spy isn't convinced, but he goes through the motions. It's beautifully written. It's got some lovely, vivid passages and flavour when it's describing um, Casablanca and and where he's going. And it's got a, a very interesting finale in that it turns out this Egyptian is not only being supported by the Russians, but the whole story about the lineage is probably cobblers. But what I found really fascinating was it's been seeded as part of a long-term play by the Russians to kind of set up this saviour figure by setting up like a, some tall stories about his lineage. Yeah. And it sounds like the Bene Gesserit setting up <laughs> Paul Atreides as the, uh, as, as, as the, the, uh, the Kwisatz Haderach. So they're setting him up as the figurehead of this Islamic movement, but some of the details aren't quite right, and and he ends up uh, he ends up basically scuppering the whole thing by having this this young Egyptian guy take uh, a physical exam, and the fact that he's not circumcised completely destroys the whole thing. But we don't know the result of that. We don't know the result of that. What he says because, is he needs to have the yeah, examination. We don't know the result. He just he just um, he sets it up. The results are found. He fucks off onto his next. We don't know whether this Egyptian kid, what happens to him, what happens to the socialist yeah. Arab rebellion, the movement, anything else. And I think another observation that suggests something quite deliberate on Murcock's part is early on his boss is always offering him Marlboros. And he always accepts a Marlboro to the point where I think at one point he doesn't accept a Marlboro anymore. But the spy on his return flight from Morocco on the plane, he buys some English cigarettes. And when he meets his boss, he offers him one. And uh, it's silk cut. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is 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 that Murcock saying this is an altogether milder version of this spy because his boss is sm- is a hardcore Marlboro smoker and he's like, no, I smoke silk cut. Yeah. <laughs> Which, to anybody who wasn't a smoker back in the day, silk cut are like were like cigarettes for people who didn't like smoking. Yeah, that was me. And you didn't only smoke. Sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you, but you didn't smoke silk cut purple. I did at the start. You went on to silk cut silver. Yeah, which had you? no which tobacco in. I, I don't think. When I was still a smoker, I used to. Act, I felt like I was trying to suck start a leaf blower, just trying to get some, <laughs> just trying to get a drag on it. And I realised after a while, actually I actually realised a few years ago because my auntie smoked silk cut, and when I was younger and I smoked, I used to take the sticky part of a Rizzler, a cigarette paper, and wrap it around the filter where the holes were. You used to do that sometimes for vags. And I used to do that with yours if I was stuck for a fag. Uh, yeah. So yeah, this, this this spy is like the silk cut smoking version of the spy from the other stories. And I, I do wonder if Murcock had reflected on the prior three tales, which for him were quite extreme in their cynicism. I do like one line from it all, which is still as pertinent, I think, today. And it's, we Russians understand and accept the nature of power rather more readily than the ambivalent English. Yeah. So again, there's still loads of fantastic passages in there. Oh, yeah. So that's the three core stories, plus just a little commentary on Casablanca. Yeah. But I think now is the time that 
we've talked about Mocock's my experiences in the Third World War, but of course we grew up largely in the eighties. Our teenage years yeah. were in the eighties, weren't they? So this additional section is called My Experiences of Worrying About the Third World War. And for me, certainly, how it kind of pervaded everything from the age of probably 10 onwards, because it was everywhere. So I suppose a question for you. Did you worry about the Third World War in the 80s? Was it something that bothered you? No. And I don't know how much of that is what we got told. Yeah. It was definitely, it was limited. Obviously, there was a lot less channels around when we were growing up. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't, and I know it did much more for you. Yeah, yeah. What defines your memories of the 80s? Ooh. So for, for me, it was things like Pops giving me books, feels very 80s. ZX Spectrum games, sitting and playing on the Spectrum. Games like Elite and Rebel Star. Um, although, um, I did spot on Twitter the other day, Scarred for Life account actually posted something about a ZX Spectrum game, which completely passed me by, I missed it. But it was about nuclear war, and when you got to the climax, if you decided to launch nuclear weapons... It told you to ring a phone line. And the phone line was a real phone line that you actually picked up and rang with your mum's telephone, which would give you a code to launch the missiles on your ZX Spectrum. So it, it, it was everywhere. So uh, turning about on my rally arena, eating spangles, wambars, Finder's crispy pancakes, moose desserts in little pots. You remember moose? You remember there's a moose loose about this moose? Yeah. yeah. So you don't see them anymore, do you? No. And... Add to all that, an underlying sense of doom and existential dread. <laughs> Not constantly, but like an undercurrent of anxiety. Yeah. I mean, for myself, it's like milk came in bottles. Yeah. We grew up on pasteurised milk, which I still, if you were to give me some, I would have a soft spot for yeah. cold. And Vesta meals, when my dad was away on driving. Vesta curries. Vesta yeah. curries. That was a Friday night treat while watching Lost Island. Yeah. 80s pop. Yeah. All the synthesise. Synthesized pops. Panda pops. Panda pops. Yeah. Yeah. Milkmen. Yeah. I know they've they've got to come back, but milkmen. milkmen. You remember wigwams? They were like a juice drink in a wigwam shaped paper carton that you stuck a straw in. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the the eighties was a foreign country, wasn't it? But Uh, there was there was limited telly. I remember we watched as a family growing up, like. The Friday the 13th. Yeah. I remember watching the oh, Eddie Kruger film. Freddy Kruger, yeah. I don't know if that was later. Yeah. But... I think the first one was late 80s, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe mid 80s. Mm. And you had the Hellraiser, that, yeah. that like your early look of horror. Yeah. Horror. 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 Your early, early look of horror films. Yeah. Um, there was a point where, as a teenager or as a kid, I would turn on the TV and it would be static because I don't know, local transmitter was out. I'd run to turn a radio on to make sure it wasn't the start of World War Three, if the TV channels were out. It's fucking stupid when you think back now. But it, that's another thing that's very 80s, possibly 90s, static, TV static. Yeah. You don't get that anymore. So white noise static, I'll add that to the list that defined the 80s for me. And there was a book called Neuromancer by William Gibson, and the opening line was, some along the lines of the sky was the colour of a television tuned to a dead channel. <laughs> Which, if you know what tellies look like that weren't tuned in properly in the 70s or 80s, you instantly get an idea of what the sky looks like. Yeah. But to anybody who doesn't remember that, that means that the sky was royal blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't really work as well as it used to. I but, mean, my, my problem is as well, I don't have a lot of memory of my childhood and yeah. I've just always been that way and it's nothing, just I don't remember a lot. Hmm. It was shot through everything. You know, even if you just talk about nuclear apocalypse themed pop music in the 80s, like Two Tribes, which is probably one of the more directly obvious ones. 
man at CNA. Uh, I mean, Enola Gay was about the plane that dropped the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. Dancing with tears in my eyes. That was about um, having a, a love affair at the end of the world. Your pal Morrissey, the Smiths, ask. I can't believe you just said that. If it's not love, then it's the bomb that will bring us together. Yeah. Uh, Prince, Ronnie Talk to Russia, 99 Red Balloons. There was a band called Modern English who were a new wave band that I must confess passed me by, but they did I Melt With You about a couple shagging while the bombs drop. Oh, I don't recall yeah, that one. Modern English, new wave band. Hmm. And uh, Midnight Oil did a song called Minutes to Midnight, which is about the Doomsday Clock. They did, yeah. Which we'll talk about shortly. Um, and possibly the best of all, Breathing by Kate Bush. Yeah, which is a fantastic song. Yeah. We've lost our chance with the first and the last after the blast. Chips of plutonium are twinkling in every lung. Yeah. Oh, grim. Dark stuff. <laughs> I don't remember a lot about my childhood, but I know that you had to watch Threads at school. And if we did, I have absolutely no memory. I'm pretty yeah. sure... Yeah, Mum and Dad wouldn't let, wouldn't let me watch Threads. They wouldn't let me stay up and watch it. But was, um, wasn't it in school? No, no, Threads was on the BBC. Threads was broadcast on the BBC and then straight afterwards there was a Newsnight special with a debate about it. Right. So what's the one you watched at school? Threads. Oh. But my mum and dad wouldn't let us stay up to watch it. But then about a week later, our English teacher made us watch it <laughs> in school. You um, won't get away with that nowadays. You'd have to no. get a tick from your parents. <laughs> no, no, because I was 12 or 13. <sighs> and our English teacher was just thought it was such an important thing Yeah. that he made us watch it in English. Because once a week we had double English. Yeah. Which was like a two-hour English lesson. Yeah, so we watched Threads. Traumatised. I was going to say, how many people from Hull who talk about watching Threads? I'm yeah. like, I'm sure we didn't do that in Grimsby. Yeah. If we did, I apologise. I have no recollection. And it's probably a good thing. Yeah. And have you seen Threads? Yes, with you. All oh, right, did I make you Thank you. Yeah, yes. sorry. Yeah, so it's it's um yeah crazy days. Yeah, you wouldn't get away with that in school these days. Not with not with kind of how sensitive things are and how quick people are to complain. I do remember there was a big outrage in I think it was the Daily Mirror, and this was in the nineties when um, a school teacher just you know when you when you get to like summer and and school teachers are just starting to let their hair down and party, which was certainly a thing back in the day. Maybe not so much these days because teachers are so stressed and overworked. Yeah. But um, he he uh, he put Terminator Two on. And of course, Terminator 2 has got the bit at the beginning where the nuclear bomb goes off and incinerates all the children in the playground. Oh, yes. And um, it caused a massive uproar, and it was in the Daily Mirror, and the teacher got into trouble. And, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 all sorts of stuff. But this week, in order to prepare for this, we decided to watch something from 80s TV. When we? you say we... Sorry, I forced clarify. you to watch something <laughs> from, from 80s TV. Because um, I, I discovered it on... And I don't remember it from the tax. It was 1980, and I was only eight. But I found it on YouTube a few years ago and I was absolutely fascinated by it because part of it takes place and is shot in a, a civil defence nuclear war exercise in a bunker just outside Hull in Warn. And I lived four miles from that bunker and never <laughs> I never knew there was a nuclear bunker at Warn. But anyway, and we'll we'll get we'll get into that in a bit. So we watched it. We watched Panorama If the Bomb Drops from nineteen eighty. I have to say it was fascinating. I'm really pleased you actually made me watch it. Yeah. Good evening. The bomb isn't likely to drop, certainly not in the near future. 
Although the Russian invasion of Afghanistan has heightened tension between East and West, few believe that a nuclear war is imminent. But what the Afghan crisis has made us do is examine what preparations have been made to enable you and me, as opposed to government, to survive a nuclear attack. Britain's Civil Defence Corps was disbanded in 1968, and since then most people seem to have wanted to avoid the subject altogether. They think either that there'll be no nuclear war, or that no one will survive it. Both assumptions are questionable. In this film, we've attempted to find out how many could survive a nuclear attack, what life would be like after such a catastrophe, and what's being done to help us survive. You may find some of this film disturbing, but as long as we remain a likely target for attack, we must think about the unthinkable, if the bomb drops. And you've got young Paxman. <laughs> yeah, very young. With a, with a beautiful, bounteous head of hair. Lovely. In introducing and they talk about the Doomsday Clock and the Association of Atomic Scientists. In 1980, it said that the Doomsday Clock was at seven minutes to midnight. Yeah. And those, that kind of reflected the risk of a potential nuclear war. And actually, they downplayed the risk of a nuclear war at that point. I think it increased over the course of the 80s. But what the documentary is really about, and it's on YouTube, and I encourage anybody interested in getting you know, a really interesting picture of just how kind of bleak things look. What do you UK. have to Google to... Just put in panorama if the bomb drops. It's uh, a fascinating look, and it's, it's it really is a damning indictment of what a shit state British civil defence was in. Because the British civil defence structures were dismantled in 1968. So at that point, we have no civil defence structure whatsoever. Yeah. And this looks in really, really deep detail. But after we talked about the, the Doomsday Clock, I looked it up. So it was seven minutes to midnight in 1980. What do you think it is now? I would hope it's one or two because of what's going on. It is 100 seconds to midnight at the moment, according to the uh, the Association of Atomic Scientists. Really? And they set that once a year. And it was set this year... In January, I think, as 100 seconds to midnight. So, not that I want to distress you or anything, but let's plow on. So, <laughs> some of the really interesting concepts that it looks at is um, how, whereas Russia adopted and, and very much pursued civil defence, mm -hmm. and Russia, the USSR's doctrine was that they would make sure enough people survived a nuclear exchange to be able to continue and continue as a society. Whereas we adopted, and the Americans adopted, something called mutually assured destruction, which said that if the, if the balloon does go up, it will be so devastating that both sides will be utterly destroyed, so there's no point really planning for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, where, so the Russians continued to, to pursue it, and Britain's plan was, uh, and we, we actually see a clip of this, was just to, to train some suits at Easing World. Oh. Yeah, to take control if everything goes <laughs> wrong. And you've got all these fucking bland, grey-looking, middle-aged white men in a lecture theatre, just being told some information about about nuclear stuff, and it's and and we found out that there's a guy who almost half depressedly tells us if the balloon goes up, four hundred nuclear weapons, each one one thousand times more powerful than the bomb drops at Hiroshima, will be targeted on the UK. Yeah. Now you say middle aged. Blimey. Part of me wants to say they were older, but having watched an episode of the Sweeney last night. And he was 32! <laughs> Honestly, John right. Thor was 32 when he started. That's and he right. was like, he must have been late for... <laughs> Every, everybody in TV in those days looks 20 years older than they really are. Oh, my word. Yeah. So this guy probably was just middle-aged. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, we watched uh, watched the first episode of the Sweden last night, didn't we? And you and you said uh, said, oh look look at Don Thor running and doing his own stunts. Yeah. And it, we looked him up. He was thirty two, and Dennis Waterman was twenty six. Honestly. Well, I suppose if you look at there's a there's a Twitter account that just shows pictures of nineteen seventies footballers, and they all look fifty. <laughs> they all look fifty. It's brilliant. So, um, UK's tactic was that, right, if we think there's going to be a war or a nuclear exchange, we'll send out leaflets, but they needed three weeks' notice to allow printing and posting out. So, as long as they had three weeks' notice of a nuclear strike, they could get the leaflets out. That is so UK, isn't it? Yeah. Plus, official films would be broadcast three days before an expected attack. And then you get those wonderful Patrick Allen um, narrated Protect and Survive videos. I say wonderful, hilarious, more than anything else. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days, and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. The official UK policy was only issue a warning in education if war is imminent. And um, if you didn't have three weeks notice, you were basically shagged. So we were the worst prepared population in Europe. And the the homemade shelter that we were instructed to build, which was like doors at 45 <laughs> degrees against a wall, paint your windows white, yeah. fill bags with soil and put them on there as, as in inverted commas, shielding. Whereas every Swiss house from the 1960s was built with fallout shelters. It's so, so swish. And then we get interviews with Lord Benelstead, this plummy gobbed twat who Ugh. sits there with a very, very much in keeping with a modern Tory minister, sits there with a, a, a half smile on his face saying, well, it's too expensive. These things take too much time. So we decided not to do it. We get a shot of a civil defence exercise, which is hardcore and fucking terrifying. <laughs> There's people with really... Whoever did the makeup on those civil defence exercises deserved an Oscar because they were absolutely terrifying. But the real main event of this documentary and the money shot comes in the worn bunker yes where they're doing an exercise based upon a one megaton ground burst in hull and basically they're told that it's all over in hull one village is on fire their cars in the car park outside are on fire the windscreens have likely melted and at one point this guy says so what you're telling us is there's very little that can be done for hull or its residents and he says, and the guy nods and says, yes. And we find out that this guy who says this is the controller, the guy who's allocated to be the controller. Yeah. And he's a former accountant and he fucking loves it. Oh. And he's called Keith Bridge. Paxman's saying, so basically, and I'll play, we'll play a clip of this, but Paxman's saying, you've got the power over the police force, the fire brigade. And he nods and goes, yes, and, uh, and actually, life and death. Paxman says, what do you mean, life and death? He says, well... In uh, specific circumstances, I could apply the ultimate sanction. And he fucking loves yeah. it. 
Absolutely. He's an Did absolute he's... psycho. Was that something about deserters? If people. Oh, yeah. So there's a little bit further on where they move to a point where they've got to role play them being 14 days into the attack. They're having massive problems with body disposal. They've got armed looters headed for the bunker. And they've captured, they've got 14 deserters stroke looters in captivity. And Keith Bridges, Keith Bridges surrounded with this group of grey, bespectacled suits who are all just saying, well, um, I think, you know, we, we don't have enough food for them. So I was like, yeah. So you've got this ma- army major and the chief constable of Humberside Police stood next to him. And he's saying, well, um, you know, I think we should, uh, I think you should have them executed. Yeah. And, and the chief constable of Humberside and the army major are just standing there acknowledging his shooting orders, including these people taken prisoner by these fucking grey suits. It's, it's so <laughs> unbelievably depressing how wank our potential situation was. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, well worth a look, and I will play a little clip of Keith Bridge. You, you, can, you can hear his smugness just through, oh. just through his, his dialogue. We also watched a bit of a QED as well, didn't we, from oh. a couple of years later. That basically is about, it's not about the, the same stuff, but it's about what actually happens if a nuclear weapon drops on London? Mm. And I think at one point we actually started laughing hysterically at this. It's worth it on a number of levels. Number one, it looks at the Protect and Survive films again and craps all over them again for being absolutely useless. Mm. It's got the most brilliant glass ver- flying glass versus pumpkin demonstration. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing. And it's it's so grim in in how it's it's presented. So it splits the effects of the nuclear bomb into heat and kind of energy impact, like wind and and flying debris. So it's got uh, Joy and Eric, and Joy and Eric have put their doors at forty five degrees <laughs> in their inner sanctum in inverted commas, and they've stacked up bags of soil. Yeah. Although it does interestingly say just how much soil you've got to actually get, because it's like. Seven tons of soil to be able to cover your... Uh... Yeah, not most gardens. No, no, certainly not. And you're buggered if you live in a flat. Yeah. And they're getting there in sanctum, and it's, it says it says something along the lines of, the soil-packed bags provide a fairly effective shield against against the heat. Yeah. So it says, join Eric, survive for another 17 seconds. <laughs> then the blast hits, and they're buried under their house. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> And it makes a conclusion that actually in 1982 money, to get anything even vaguely useful, they'd have to spend £15,000 in 1982. It's absolutely wow. incredible. So yeah, that, that QED documentary is on <laughs> YouTube as well. So yeah, fascinating time to be alive. Really interesting looking back on it all. Mm. But I think as, uh, I think as a final thing for this, for this show, I think we've decided on a special feature. We, once again. Yeah, I've decided on a special feature, (laughs) and it's the wandering, depressing nuclear apocalypse film table. And we've got four potential films, but we're going to roll a D6. One, my choice. Two, Threads. Three, When the Wind Blows. Four, The War Game. Pete Watkins documentary from the late sixties mm. that was basically not broadcast for so for decades because it was so disturbing. Five, the day after. That's probably the booby prize, but I've never watched it in its entirety, mm. which is, is often described as the American Threads, but it came out before Threads. And six, your choice. Okay. 
I'm also going to have a run because I think I'll need it for whatever we're going to watch. Okay. Well, let's have a, a, a quick tipple before you roll the dice to make sure that we're all prepared. Cheers. So, to repeat, one, my choice. Yours. Two, threads. threads. Which it turns out I've got three separate copies of when I went to the shell to look for it. How that happened, I don't know. Three, when the wind blows. Four, the war game. Five, the day after. Six, your choice. Drum roll. Three. When the wind blows. Yeah. When the wind blows. <laughs> so, we're going to watch When the Wind Blows. We're going to keep on drinking throughout to get through it, and then we're going to reconvene straight afterwards, probably with Phil under a massive pile of tissues. <laughs> and we'll just reflect back on our experience. So, we'll be back shortly. An extraordinary book is about to come to life as an unforgettable motion picture. It's the story of Jim and Hilda. Hello, dear. Hello, love. Did you have a nice morning, dear? Oh, all right, thanks. Rather uneventful. <laughs> Two kind, well, simple people living on trust and Can hope. It more than a few bombs to get me down. The Prime Minister, speaking a few minutes ago in the House of Commons, has warned that the international situation is deteriorating rapidly. Crumbs! What's the matter, dear? Have you burned yourself? This is it, Ducks. This is really it. But now they're caught up in events which will change our world forever. Just you be careful, James. An enemy missile attack has been launched Oh, dear. I've left the oven on. Get in! Get in! Get in! Okay, we're back. We'll just watch When the Wind Blows. <laughs> How was that for you? Oh, that was so depressing. <laughs> it was pretty depressing. So in order to actually get over this, we're going to have some... I think we need a snifter to get yes. us through this. Um, and we'll have a quick discussion about When the Wind Blows. So we have some Lock Fine chocolate and orange scotch whiskey liqueur from the Lock Fine whiskey shop in Inverary, which we picked up on our last... Trip up there, a delightful alternative for whiskey lovers. Our chocolate and orange liqueur uses traditional ingredients with a modern twist. Now, that's actually fairly true because you're not a big whiskey fan, are you? No. Nope. You like Jameson's, you like bourbon. Yep. But otherwise, we were in the Lockfine whiskey shop one year and I was half cooked because he was getting me to taste things. He was getting you to taste yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, he saw me coming, yeah. he spent a fortune. <laughs> Um, but we decided to, uh, you tried the Lockfine Whiskey Liqueur and you loved it, so whenever we're up there, we always get it. And I've just got to comment on the shot glass. I have a lumpy spe Space Princess shot glass, as you've got the dog. Yeah. Whose name I've forgotten. Yeah, already. that's right. Jake, Jake the dog. Jake the dog. You've got Jake the dog, I've got Lumpy Space Princess. So cheers, bud. Cheers. 
Oh, so good. Oh, hells. Yeah, that's the business, isn't it? Oh. Right, When the Wind Blows, based on a Rem Briggs cartoon. Directed by Jimmy Murakami. I haven't seen this, I realised as we were watching it, probably for the thick end of 30 years. I've seen it. Mm, because back in the day, me and my mates, when we were up to our ears in roaches, uh, not cockroaches, in <laughs> we're up to our ears <laughs> smoking pot and doing various other things. Back in the days of VHS tapes, we had a number of tapes and back in those days you would have like a three or four hour videotape and you would have two films on it. And what we tended to do was get smashed and put a film on and we would always end up watching the second film on that tape. And while we were watching that, I remembered that we, our favourite tapes were, we would watch Spinal Tap, and then we had to continue and watch the next film on, which was Watership Down. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah, Oh, no, true. there's a cartoon that actually makes me cry. Yeah, and the other VHS tape we had was The Keep, plus When the Wind Blows. Yeah, we were in some states back in those days. Yeah, the first, the first films on both tapes, great. Yeah. The second ones. Yeah. Yeah. This is the story of an ageing couple living in a cottage in the countryside who very earnestly prepare for a potential nuclear blast and how it goes, essentially, with the protect and survive stuff and everything else. And it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating observation of what a not particularly well-educated, middle-aged to elderly couple would do. And in that, it's actually a really damning indictment of how much of a pile of bollocks the Protect and Survive advice was. I forgot how varied the animation style was. It kicks off with a really grounded introduction, which is um, actual footage of nuclear missiles being transported through an English village with protesters standing by, with the absolutely terrific David Bowie song, When the Wind Blows, which is a great track. And, And from there... It's, it's like several days in the life of this couple, James and Hilda, as, number one, they prepare for and in some ways are unprepared for what happens when they get that three-minute warning over the radio and then what happens beyond that fact after they do everything that they're instructed to do. Well, guided by James, to be honest, Hilda was just in her own world all the way through. Hilda's like the Cossacks at the end of Crossing to Cambodia, <laughs> isn't she? She's like, well, I don't get radiation. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's just interested in making the dinner, getting the kettle on, memories of Anderson shelters and Morrison shelters. and Don't, and don't scratch the paintwork. Don't scratch the paintwork, yeah. yeah. But yes, I, I actually uh, thought that. Uh, they romanticised World War Two. Yeah. The shelters and their memories of it. Yeah, absolutely. They have this rose-tinted view of the war and Blitz mm-hmm. spirit and everything else, which is particularly poignant now when you realise that, that that generation are largely either very, very old or are dead, and it's the next generation of people who have the rose-tinted view of the Blitz in the wartime experience who probably weren't alive during that time, but it's been kind of rekindled with in, in a lot films. of modern politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got, and on the other hand, you've got James, who has absolute tragic level of trust in the instructions oh, from Protect and Survive, so and the instructions from the County Council leaflets, sometimes which are contradictory. Contradictory to the government ones. Yeah. But yeah. He, although he questioned it, yeah. he still followed it. And there's there's a an absolutely fantastic bit where she says she says Hilda says to James, 
Is it like Anderson Shelters? He says, oh, no, Duck. With modern scientific method, you use doors with cushions and books on top. And he just completely, he completely buys into it. Really buys into it. But it's whilst you're watching it and thinking how naive they are, it's so warm and well-observed and actually quite funny in places mm. that the looming tragedy that you know is coming kind of ends up all the more upsetting as a result because it's so, it's so well-observed. And, of course, it's really a two-person cast. It's Sir John Mills, Dame Peggy Ashcroft providing the voices. They're so well-voiced, these characters. Yeah. The animation is absolutely beautiful. It is. And a mixture of cartoon and animation, yeah. wasn't it? Really, it was really expressive. With a great score. Yeah, really excellent score by Roger Waters. Who, I mean, we mentioned... I think Roger Waters is quite a divisive figure these days with his politics, but we mentioned earlier 80s songs that were nuclear war-themed. I said Breathing by Kate Bush was probably the best, but I'd also put on a par from the final cut by Pink Floyd, which was largely written by Roger Waters, probably more so even than any previous album. Uh, a song called Two Sons in the Sunset, the final track on the final cut, which is incredible. They remain completely earnest and trusting that the powers that be will see them through. And it doesn't really start to come crashing down. I mean, obviously, the, the nuclear bomb drops, the house is wrecked, they're in their, what does he call it, the inner car or refuge, that he constantly calls it, we must stay in the inner car or refuge. And... It, they're just so ill-prepared, and but they followed everything absolutely to the letter. But even when they go outside and all the the vegetables are all ruined yeah. and stuff, they just kind of ignore it. Yeah. Waiting for those emergency services to come and save them. That never come. Yeah. But they, they just can't help but rationalise it. And mm. whenever Hilda is struggling, James's efforts to rationalise everything over time, just become more and more desperate and pathetic. It's very, very sad. Mm. And eventually, what really breaks them is when they run out of milk and water and the ability to make a cup of tea, and then things, their entire world just breaks down at that point. Yeah. And their deterioration is really excruciatingly upsetting, particularly those attempts at reassurance as they get more and more desperate and they wait for help that that just isn't coming. But it's that thing, like you said, about middle-aged couples who have their comforts that get them through each day. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that cup of tea. Yeah. Because he made some reference, didn't he, to people... Some people use lemons. That's like right, it yeah. Was... Yeah, posh people use lemons. Yeah. Yeah. What's that about? I can never have a cup of tea without milk. Posh people use lemons. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really, really glad we watched it. I know it's not the most positive... An entertaining of movies in that respect, but it's such a satisfying piece of art mm. as a film. Very well made. Yeah, and everything about it works, and the combination of the original Raymond Briggs source, Jimmy Murakami's animation techniques and paintings and mm. everything else, and actually, yes, the Roger Waters score, make it one of my, the saddest but kind of most vital pieces of art related to what we've been talking about, you know, the, the impending Third World War. Threads is a horror story. Yes. Essentially, it's it's a really excruciatingly brutal horror story, with, but it doesn't embellish anything. It kind of shows things really starkly. But this is a, a really stylized, artful look at the nuclear apocalypse from the point of view of Middle England, a couple of 
older folk living in a cottage. Just, it's it really is fantastic. And thinking back to Panorama that we watched, when it's talking about our lack of preparedness, when you see that, when we watch When the Wind Blows, and you think, if we're now on that general ramp up towards the threats of things like nuclear engagements, we're, we're worse prepared than we ever, ever, ever have been in the past. And in the end, I think we just have to be like Ron, his son, there's that bit early on when he thinks uh, he doesn't he doesn't really know how to plot sixty degrees when he's putting his, his his doors against the wall. Oh yeah. And he doesn't have a protractor, so he calls his son Ron, who lives in London, and he asks Ron, and Ron's laughing at him down the phone, and he sings to him down the phone, "We'll all go together when we go." And James gets very frustrated by this. He says it's our duty to to mm. obey government instructions, and his son's laughing at him down the phone. But actually, we're so ill prepared now. I think the only sensible and logical approach is to laugh and say, "Well, all go together when we go." You know, we're 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 in Ron's mindset now. I think. But it is. I know it's kind of a. It is a really awful topic, and it does bring you down. And especially the more you think about it, the more you watch. But everything that's going on in Ukraine and Russia, and we're talking about prime ministers that are being fined. We've got MPs that are saying. Let's send them all to another country. Mm. It's still we're still being this awful island mm. that's trying to keep everybody out whilst people are being killed. It's just yeah. Yeah, it's I don't know if it's the booze speaking because booze is a depressant, mm. but it is um, quite a poor situation that we find ourselves in. But on the other hand, I've had a really great time doing this because I always enjoy doing this with you, and I don't mm. want to depress our listeners. You know, all we've got to say is. My Experiences in the Third World War is a terrific book. When the Wind Blows is a terrific piece of art. Panorama and QED <laughs> on YouTube are not only interesting, but downright hilarious in parts. Yeah. And, you know, we've got, I think, a lot of people and a lot of creatives and a lot of artists to thank that we can actually find some... Because all these things are modes of entertainment, aren't they? They're not just there to be um, absorbed and depressed by. I enjoyed reading My Experiences in the Third World War. I enjoyed watching When the Wind Blows again. I think we should go ahead and watch the war game and just let's fully commit and go crackers. I probably accept that that's not the top of your list of things to do next. No, but I know, knowing you, that in the next week or two, maybe longer if I'm lucky, (laughs) threads will be put in that Blu-ray player. Well, it may well be. I... (laughs) I don't think you've seen the war game. I haven't seen the war game. Yeah, so maybe we should go with the war game. So one night you'll just go, I've got a movie for us. <laughs> and that's what you'll throw at me. I think maybe for for the patrons of the patron extra, we should, uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll watch the war game, we'll watch Threads, and we'll watch the day after. Oh, I should get paid for having to do this. Yeah, well, I'm, pa- I'm paying you in sweet, sweet booze. <laughs> That's all I can say. I'm paying you a sweet, sweet bit. But it has been fun. I enjoy these sessions. Yes, with you. absolutely. So um, let's finish off our glass. Lumpy Space Princess is shouting at me as I knock this back. As is Jake. So is Jake. Give Actually, me more. Jake's got his hands on his belly and he's going, mm, more booze. <laughs> okay, well, cheers, baby. Um, here's to the next time. When we'll do... Okay. Warriors of Mars. We we may do a, a, a little patron extra where we look at threads for Wargame and the day after, but 
our next proper episode will be Warriors of Mars. Cheers. Cheers. And of course, we also have neglected to mention that we did uh, a patron draw and giveaway. Of course, yes. Yeah, for uh, a host of Michael Mocock Spurs that we had. Um, I don't think there's any point actually going through the list and doing the draw because we did that previously. Recording that didn't work out. And everybody, by and large, will have got them by now. Anyway, by the time this actually goes out. So I've already had some thanks. And I know for a fact that uh, Randall in the USA got his copy. Um, so some of the USA copies have started arriving as well. Excellent. So it just seems maybe a little bit after the horse has bolted to actually go through that. Right and I hope now. everyone enjoys what was sent. Hmm. But I do actually have a second copy of the Savoy edition of my experiences in the Third World War. So when that's in hand... That will go out to somebody and we'll do a random draw at some Excellent. point and I'll pop that on the uh, on the Patreon page. Thanks, Phil. I'll see you again for Warriors of Always Mars. a pleasure. How would they survive at three and a quarter miles? As far as heat is concerned, quite well. Although the paint on the windows will burn, the whitewash keeps 80% of the heat out. There may be fires in unprotected houses nearby, but Joy and Eric should survive, at least for 17 seconds. After that, the blast demolishes their terrace of houses. One in one in nuclear attack! Thanks as ever to Phil, my most stable of rocks, for joining me in Darien Toms and making some rather marvellous old fashions. We'll get back to our original itinerary at some point and look at City of the Beast, as we have been planning to do for well over a year now. Things just keep getting in the way, and books keep falling apart. We have a new review on Apple Podcasts. It's by the Odinson and it's titled A Fantastic Fantasy Podcast. And the Odinson says, Finally, one of Britain's on all of fantasy's greatest and most prolific writers, Michael Moorcock gets his due in this funny, in-depth look at his vast body of work. Come for the stories, stay for the host's warm and witty banter with his friends and guests, and even enjoy the varied music showcased on the show. For a long time I wished for a podcast dedicated to Moorcock, and I got that, and more. Great stuff. Many thanks for those kind words, Almighty Odinson. It's great getting reviews. If anybody enjoys listening, why not leave us a review, or drop us a line, and tell us what you think. Meanwhile, over on YouTube, our subscriber count is ticking upwards, and we've had a couple of nice comments. Martin Green simply said, Sven Hassel and Hull. Perfect. Thanks Martin, it is a great combination, it's true. Wolfric1232 commented on our episode 0 introduction to the podcast back in 2019, quoting us when he says, Ours was a world of the Eternal Champion, Dungeons and Dragons, and Spangles, until Spangles vanished. And Wolfric says, that may be the most poignant sentence I have ever heard. Thanks Wolfric, there were heady days indeed. Michelle Hills commented on the 2020 Halloween special covering the rats, and she said, I read this as a kid. My mum had all the horror books, especially the pan compilations. They were horrific, 
but they gave me a love for all things horror. I have three kids. Two of them love it, like me. One hates it, like a dad. I did reread The Rats a few months ago. It's obviously very politically incorrect. But every now and then I like to read a Stephen King, a James Herbert or a Dean Koontz just for nostalgia. This podcast made me laugh. Very enjoyable. Well, thanks for listening, Michelle. We have a good laugh doing these, so it's gratifying to know that you folks get a giggle out of it too. I really need to pay more attention to the YouTube comments, so we'll do so in the future. Over on social media, if you can avoid the doom scrolling, some great conversations continue, and Goran Gligovich has posted some really wonderful stills from an Elric animated movie storyboard that maybe, or may have been, or maybe somewhere else. Check his Twitter feed out for details, it's well worth your time, and you can follow him or become a patron and get access to all of those images. If you check out Andrew Nett's account at Pulp Curry, you can find some clips of the Mocock interview streamed as part of the Dangerous Visions and New Worlds Symposium. That full interview will be gone on YouTube soon along with all the other great feeds from that two-day event. In fact, by the time this goes out, it probably will be up there already. Also, via Twitter, Raftronaut pointed me towards the podcast They Create Worlds, and their show looking at the creation of the Final Fantasy series of games and how Mocock is named as a key influence. Well worth checking out. Raftronaut also asked if we were considering a video game focused show, and I must say it hadn't previously occurred to me. But, with our friend Dave extolling the virtues of Elden Ring, and the Mocockian tropes embedded in that game, it's something I'll definitely give some thought to. The Mocock fan in me demands that they should really have committed fully, and that game should have been called Elden Ring. I understand that George R.R. R. Martin was deeply involved in that game too, and he certainly owes Mocock a huge debt. It's been a while since we did any tabletop gaming-focused shows, so maybe this is the next logical step on that journey. And had there been a ZX Spectrum Elric game, we probably would have been there already. Who knows? Perhaps if Goran's Elric movie exists in another world, perhaps that 8-bit game does too. And if you've listened to our previous show with the artist called Elric, we all know the Dungeon Synth score is already out there. New patron Paul McRandall dropped me a line to say, I'm in New York City, but first came across Elric as a kid on the other edge of the continent. I was an avid collector of comics when Star Reach 6 came out with Elric on the cover and a script by Gary Petras in 1976, though I've no idea if Mike had any involvement. After that, I found the door paperbacks of Elric, the Coram Trilogy, Hawkmoon, and soon enough, Jerry Cornelius via the airtight Garage comics in Heavy Metal. I've read him off and on ever since. I've really enjoyed the episodes, including the at times incomprehensible chaos brews consumed, and look forward to your covering the Pyatt series and Mother London. Congratulations for pulling together a thoroughly enjoyable podcast. Well, thanks for that, Paul. I've not come across Star Reach. I've not even heard of it, so I'll keep my eyes well peeled. And that reminds me, since Lord's Phil and I did our stupid beer special Moorcock character matching, which is available to patrons on Patreon page, or their RSS feeds, my kitchen is actually bereft of Chaos Brews, with the possible exception of the second four-pack of Marmite Pale Ale I foolishly picked up in the vain hope it wasn't horrible. Spoiler, it was. But anyway, I need to get some supplies in for the next Lost Caper, because we'll be reconvening soon. Since the last show, the extremely smart Saga Press edition of the first volume of the Elric Saga has finally landed. It's a very attractive term, and Joe Monty and his gang over at Saga have done a really fantastic job. Whilst it was nice to pick up the Golanx editions and the Millennium ones before them, this volume is hands down the best looking, even if I do have some slight misgivings about the dark, gothy Elric trend in terms of art these days, and of course Dave and I discussed that, on the last episode. For Robert Gould fans though, there are some lovely glossy full page inserts of colour art in there, including Gould, 
so we all get looked after. I'll be digging into that properly over the next couple of weeks and keeping a keen eye out for more revisions to add to the sadder mission of Elric's funky garb in the Dreaming City. If anyone's ahead of me, please do drop me a line with any observations. It's time now, as ever, to thank our patrons. It continues to humble me that we are worthy of your support. First up, our Chaos Engineers. Brutal Lashmar has been redecorating your bunk rooms with some mood lighting, and it could go either way to be honest, but I'm hoping for something like Andromeda's recording studio in Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Our Chaos Engineers are Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Ben Fletcher, Dave Washman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And to our Jugaderos, the Terminal Cafe keeps changing location, Tanalon style. It's currently in Morecambe, so I hope you all pop down the bath for a pickled egg. Our Jugaderos are Alexander Harris, Craig Ledley, Dave Dalrymple, Ian Stead, and if you're unsure of the way, Ian knows the ways to the pickled eggs. Laws, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Miles Riedelbato, Steve Round, Toby White, and Tom Murphy. And to our patron demons, those of you who got drawn for a dog-eared old Millennium Edition, or indeed something else from the spares pile, will get them in the post over the next few days, or it may well be, by the time this is out, they're already in the post and you might even have them already, in which case it's a pleasant surprise. Our patron demons are Clarky the Cruel, Gareth Wilson, the Cursed Monkey Hand, Graham Holden, the Duck Pond Sailor, Imria, Joe Monty, Paul Hillary, the Lapsed Gamer, Liam Jones, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Randall Gatlin, Robert McMillan, brand new patron demon Janie Stimmo, and the OG patron Norman Beresford. And finally, of course, those patrons without a tear, thanks to Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Cardos, Anthony Piconti, and Dave Dempster. Best wishes, Dave, and I hope your eyes are better. And that just about concludes my waffle for this show. Don't forget, you can yak with us on Twitter with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The website is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and that's got some extras. But until next time, take care, stay safe. I'll see you soon out there on the Moonbeam Roads. I'm being a ground Mr. Controller, because outside, what? I'm sad to say, gentlemen, but all our cars are a charcoal brown colour, and all our windscreens are gone, and adjacent housing around the station is on fire. There's a multitude of trees that have been demolished, so we're positive it's a ground burst weapon, a one megaton size. So there's extreme damage outside of this control station. So it would explain why we felt the station shake at the time of the explosion. And this would mean that there is very little that one can do for Hull or its residents. In the end, it comes down to one man, a man with more power than he could ever have imagined, even in his grossest dreams or nightmares. Keith Bridge, a former accountant. How much power do you have as controller? As soon as the bomb goes off, total power, theoretically. That would include power over the police, fire brigade, all that sort of thing? Yes, and life and death. Powers of life and death? Yes. What does that mean? That if people were looting, it would be um, within my competence to instruct that they'd be executed. Would you expect that kind of situation to arise? It's quite possible. It's feasible. Does having that kind of uh, power, total power, worry you? No.